Welcome to the Hanu Health Podcast, where our mission is to help you to breathe better and stress less. On this show, we discuss a variety of topics and provide practical suggestions for improving health and well-being. However, none of the education, tips, and tricks provided should be taken as medical advice. Your medical doctor is your best bet if you have medical questions. Also, on this podcast, we interview numerous guests from diverse backgrounds, interests, and may carry some unique ideas. Hanu Health as a company does not endorse all statements provided by guests or condone all suggestions or protocols discussed. We just like hearing about cool people doing rad and new things. So sit back, relax, breathe, and enjoy the show. So Patrick, the uh, first thing that I should probably do is clarify uh, that a 70-year-old chain-smoking male has not taken over as the host of this podcast, in case anybody like automatically thinks, like, who's this guy talking right now? Um, I was actually gifted this week, uh, I use gifted very loosely, uh, with some fun chest and nasal congestion um, that my kids are notorious for bringing home from schools. I feel like it's just kind of like an incubator for this stuff at school sometimes, but they brought it home. And, you know, I think the, the, the most interesting slash funny thing is that like I found out and I didn't know if you knew this, Patrick, but, uh, there are other viruses and infections going on right now, other than the, (laughs) the big one. So, uh, I was kind of caught off guard, but I was like, you know, listen, the show must go on. We're going to record this podcast. Uh, and so here we are, man, glad to, glad to be back, but I'm really curious, uh, um, is there anything that you have suggested, like either in the past or things that you can think of, especially in terms of like breath work that can help with something like this? Because, man, I could I could use it today. Yeah, the other viruses are just so that we don't rest in our laurels. You know, we might have escaped COVID and we might be towards the end of it, but um, something else could be out there. So <laughs> right. in terms of nasal obstruction it's something that we've always worked with and this is you know this is an area that doesn't get a whole lot of attention and yet i think the the biggest impact it is is on sleep Uh, and you know if you have a stuffy nose you're more likely to be mouth breathing you're breathing faster upper chest your sleep is disrupted you're more likely to have insomnia or snoring or obstructive sleep apnea but you know there's a a breath hold technique that's been around since about 1923 or first reported in 1923 to help open up the nose. And hmm. this has been hidden. And I came across breath hold techniques back in 1997 to do the same thing. But I never realized it's almost been around now for 100 years. And yet very few people realize that if their nose is stuffy, you can simply decongest your nose in about five minutes. Hmm. Oh, do tell. It's very simple. Don't do this if you're pregnant. Uh, don't do it if you have serious medical conditions. It's so good, hopefully good you disclaimer. just get a stuffy nose. And other than that, you're in pretty good health. And to do this exercise, you can take a normal breath in through your nose and out through your nose and pinch your nose and hold your nose and just walk around holding your breath until you feel a moderate to strong air hunger and then let go and breathe in through your nose. I breathe normal for about a minute or so, breathing in and out through your nose and then do it again. And... Uh, you know, you can do it different ways. You could breathe in through your nose and out through your nose and pinch your nose and hold your nose. You could jog on the spot and keep jogging on the spot while you're holding your breath until you feel a fairly strong air hunger and then let go. Breathe in through your nose. Breathe normal for about a minute or so. And if you do that a few times, your nose will be opened up in five minutes. 
Yeah. You know, it's funny. I've heard you, you know, write about this, or I guess I've read what you've written about this and I've heard you talk about this. And I was, uh, now that I'm thinking about it, you know, hindsight's 2020, right? I'm like, you know what? I probably should have done this prior to our podcast to do (laughs) do a little bit of clearing, but, ah, you know, as such is life. Sometimes we remember to do certain things and and sometimes we don't. Um, is this the, is this the protocol that you used a, a lot of times with like asthmatics or this, this for something different? It's pretty much the same. Like we mainly we used it with children coming in and teenagers with, with asthma. And then we had another nose and blocking technique that we'd have a person breathe in and out through their nose and pinch their nose and just, just gen- gently nod their head up and down holding the breath until they reach a, a moderate to strong air hunger. But really, it doesn't matter what, what movement you do. It's, it's simply you have to breathe out first, then hold your breath and continue holding your breath during physical movement until you have the moderate to strong air hunger. Now, that exercise will will decongest your nose, but your nose might get stuffy sometime later. You have to do it again. So mm-hmm. you do it a few times throughout the day. But I, like, I'll give you an example, Jay. I was working with that with people primarily with asthma from about 2002 until about 2007 and eight, And we've seen phenomenal results because when you have somebody would ask me they don't just have a problem with their lungs because the the human airway even though if you go to a hospital and if you've got a problem with your nose you're likely to go to an ear nose and throat doctor and if you have a problem with your lungs you go to a a respiratory consultant or a pulmonologist but there's really no difference because your nose is is linked with your lungs and vice versa so when you have somebody that has a problem with their lungs they're more likely to have a problem with their nose and if you have a problem with your nose, that also can travel down to your lungs. So it's one airway. It's a unified airway. And uh, yeah, we would expect 50% less coughing and wheezing and just ease of breathing within about two weeks from practicing the exercises. And it starts off with nose breathing and a variety of different techniques. You know, if, you're, if your breathing is a little bit labored, what do you do? If you're... If you're um, you know, having chest tightness, what can you do, et cetera? And it's just to help ease symptoms. And I think it's, it's a great way to help improve asthma control. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I love that, you know, this can be used for people who have kind of that chronic congestion, you know, that nasal pathway mm. blockage. Also, too, I mean, for transients, someone like me who doesn't necessarily deal with, you know, kind of the long term chronic congestion, uh, you know, of both the nasal pathway or the throat pathway. Um, however, you know, I, I just I, I find that to be just an kind of incredibly low hanging fruit that is so practical and useful for anyone. You know, you may, you mentioned something, Patrick, about kind of the effects that congestion can have on sleep. And that's been a big one for me because as you know, I'm a huge fan of mouth taping at night. Night, I know you love doing it as well. And so for me, like I've always been cautious. Like, and the great thing is, is that, and this is a shameless plug for Patrick's, you know, to the, the mouth tape that he created, the myotape, um, is that like with the myotape, at least like it goes around kind of the circumference of the mouth and lips and doesn't bind the lips shut. So I'm not nearly as nervous with it. Um, but for people that do mouth taping at night um if they're using like more kind of conventional tape whether it's you know like surgical tape or whatever they're they've got on hand like can that be dangerous if they have like some pretty significant nasal congestion and then still choose to mouth tape like would that be advised against yeah it's a good question um normally we we request people to make sure that they can breathe through their nose it's just Uh kind of common sense you know 
Now, if somebody does have a pretty stuffy nose, like my example, I, I was one of those people with chronic nasal obstruction. It's about 10% of the population. And um, I use BreedRite strips. When I started taping my mouth, I was doing the, the nose and blocking exercises, but I also had to give, you know, I had to use something else as well just to help open up the nose, and that was BreedRite strips. And I use BreedRite mm-hmm. strips to open up my nose for a few days with the mouth tape. So at least then, I had something, you know, if the nose was getting stuffy. Now, touch wood, 20 years we've been we've been requesting people to tape the mouths. The myotape is much safer, of course. There's no risk because you can open your mouth if you need to. Um, but we didn't have any issues, to be honest with you, with the other ones. Certainly with kids, we don't we don't like doing it. Just you know, there's a there's a risk, of course, with children. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'd never we'd never have the the kids taping across the lips. But uh, with adults, adults can get a bit apprehensive. And I think it was the one thing I remember in a, a room, a conference room about 15 years ago, and there were about 10 people inside and we were all taped up and I was going through the nose and blocking exercise. So you can imagine 10 people around the boardroom table and they were all taped up and they were nodding their head up and down. And somebody got lost inside in the, the training place and came straight into the room and came across 10 or 15 people, I can't remember how many, all wearing tape across the mouth, not even surrounding <laughs> That's a the scene. Mouth. Well, you want, she turned in, she, she looked straight in the room, turned around as quick as she came in and out the door she was gone. And I was only thinking, what on earth did she think we were up to, you know? <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm sure she probably was like, yeah, I'm not being a part of this crazy cult. Like, I'm out of here. <laughs> oh, because, it, well, you know, it's, it's, uh, mouth taping has been, you know, it's becoming a lot more kind of commonplace. You know, I think that, you know, we were seen as kind of like the weirdos, you know, doing this yeah. you know, practice kind of here, you know, within the last, you know, decade or so. Um, and in the last like five years or so, I've really seen it kind of like take a turn and people are like, oh, yeah, 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 you're doing the mouth tape thing. I've heard of that. And, you know, it's work like yours and James Nestor, who really kind of brought this kind of practice into the limelight, and people have uh, kind of seen that there are a lot of there's a lot of great research behind this. I mean, physiologically, like it makes sense. Um, you know, it's just you got to be smart with it. You got to do it the right way. And again, like you know, in order to provide another shameless plug, like when it comes to mouth tape, like I really like the one that you created, Myotape, uh, because like I don't fear like putting it on at night, like and thinking, oh, you know, if you know, I, I end up like for some reason not being able to breathe through my nose then yeah i'm just gonna like pass out and die which you know wouldn't happen anyway i think we'd wake up before we died you would, sure, <laughs> you would. Yeah. yeah but it, it, if anything it just gives peace of mind so i like that ability i also like the ability to especially with kids with the myotape like if they like cry for us at night like i don't have to waste a piece of tape by taking it off and then going and talking <laughs> to them i can just walk into the room and talk to them or i can you know talk to my wife next to me if she needs me for something it's a uh, it's a really great benefit so if people haven't checked out your your myotape uh, um, then they should uh, because it's a an extremely uh, well-made and versatile mouth tape that I use both for sleep and then also too I use it a lot for uh, when I'm out uh, training like even on runs and stuff um, because even though it allows me to kind of like breathe in through my mouth I think just having it on there like mm. automatically like conditions my body to breathe through the nose because I get that gentle pull of my lips together and it's just kind of like that reminder of hey now time to nasal breathe which you know should be a bulk majority my time too so mm-hmm. yeah it's yeah, good stuff yeah. Yeah, yeah no and i'd say jay just to air on that anybody waking up with a dry mouth in the morning um you know just check check if your mouth is is it moist when you wake up or is it dry 
And if you have a dry mouth waking up, you're not likely to get that deep sleep. So whatever you do, start trying to do your best to get your mouth closed during sleep and also your tongue resting in the roof of the mouth. And that will help to open up the airway and with a more open airway. And I'm talking about the space just at the back of the nose, the space at the back of the mouth where it meets the throat and the throat itself. If you have a more open airway, you're going to be less susceptible to resistance to your breathing during sleep. And basically this would mean that you're, you would have less severity of obstructive sleep apnea and also mouth snoring stops once you get the mouth closed. Now you can still snore through your nose, but by improving your breathing patterns, you can reduce nasal snoring. And uh, there is even, I was just looking at a paper today, 2021, and talking about nasal obstruction causing sleep problems. And none of this is new. This has been around for 400 years. And, you know, when you really think about it, Jay, and you were talking about sleep earlier on, is there anything more important as a function to get right in the human body? Hmm. Yeah, no, it's, it, is, it is one of the main pillars of health. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Well, thanks for that information. It's going to be quite helpful. And again, like my apologies for you guys having to put up with this uh, raspy smoker's voice. I, I, I promise you that it will just be for this episode. Or at least I hope so. Man, if it sticks around that long, then something's going on. Uh, but again, welcome back, Hanu Health Podcast. This is the Q and A episode where Patrick McCune and myself, Jay Wiles, uh, uh, answer your questions. Wait, we dive into user questions because you know I, I receive emails all the time. I know you do too, Patrick, of people who are just wanting to better their overall health and well-being, improve and optimize their ability for stress resiliency. And so we take people's questions, we answer them, and we do so hopefully in a way that is practical and useful, something that you can take home with you and then you know start today. So uh, I want to go ahead and first thank everybody for um, just kind of the, the reviews that have been provided, uh, the feedback that's been provided on the first few podcasts that we released. Um, um, so, you know, it's it's been about a month now that Patrick and I released the first Q&A episode. And uh, again, kind of the, the rave reviews that we've gotten have been incredible. So please continue to go on to Apple Podcast, write us these five-star reviews. This truly helps people to find us. Uh, but also too, like if you're not a part of our wait list, do so because we sent out and we're going to send out 10 free gear packs. Again, that's 10 free Hanu Health gear packs to those who wrote the first 10 reviews. So we already sent out the email letting people know kind of who won, um, and, but we haven't heard back from everybody. So reach out to podcast at HanuHealth.com if you see your review as one of the ones that won, and we'll send you out this amazing gear package. But again, I just want to thank everybody for taking the time to download, subscribe, listen to this podcast, as well as get on the wait list so that you can hear you know more information and highlights of this, this company and what we're building and what we're doing in the space of heart rate variability, breath work, and nervous system resiliency. Uh, again, we can't thank you enough for that. So I want to transition now um, and talk about something that um, I get a lot of questions about, but it's not even necessarily within kind of my my domain or my lane. I would say it is in, to one extent, but it's way more in your lane, uh, Pat, uh, Patrick, because you're the guy uh, who is the expert on this area. And it's this 
idea of uh, how long can you hold your breath um, and CO2 tolerance and then something called the Bolt score. Um, so a lot of people have heard me talk about the Bolt score. A lot of people have heard you, Patrick, talk about the Bolt score, obviously. So I wanted to just take a few minutes here to kind of unpack like what is the Bolt score? We talked about this and highlighted it a little bit on the last Q&A, but I'd love to take more of a deep dive. So number one, what is the Bolt score? Like how do we assess it? Like what do we make of our scores? And then like how do we improve it? So Patrick, let's start first with like what is the Bolt score? Yeah, I think it's always a good place to start. And uh, BOLT stands for Body Oxygen Level Test. It was just, you know, a, a name that we put together to kind of get the information across. It's it's very simply when you're sitting down for a few minutes and get out your t- a timer, a watch or your phone, whatever you have, and take a normal breath in through your nose and out through your nose and pinch your nose and time it in seconds. How long does it take until you feel the first definite desire to breathe or the first involuntary movement of your, of your breathing muscles? And when you let go, your breathing should be pretty normal. So it's not the maximum length of your breath hold time. Again, it's a comfortable breath hold time taken after an exhalation. And Patrick, too, that's a great clarification because a lot of people ask me. So it's like they'll say, like, how far do I push this? Um, Mm. Because, you know, I guess there is going to be a level of subjectivity here. Um, You know, it could Mm. be objective in that you do feel like a muscular contraction. But I know you always say it's that, you know, again, that first kind of urge to take a breath. And so, like, is is there like wiggle room here? Like, would you say that it is a bit subjective or like are there objective things that we should look for? Yeah, there's a small kind of variance of about two seconds normally. So that would be between, say, for example, the first definite stress to breathe and mm-hmm. the first involuntary movement of your breathing muscle. So you, you can imagine that as you hold your breath, the gas carbon dioxide, which is coming from the tissues into the blood, carbon dioxide is building up in the blood because when you hold your breath, carbon dioxide is not going to leave the body through the lungs. And as carbon dioxide increases, blood pH drops. And the brain reacts by sending a stimulus to breathe because we breathe to breathe out carbon dioxide. So the primary stimulus to breathe is to get rid of carbon dioxide. And it's not just a carbon dioxide is a waste gas, but the body is very sensitive to the accumulation of carbon dioxide. So when we talk about a CO2 tolerance test, your length of your breath hold time provides you a good indicator of how sensitive are you to the buildup of carbon dioxide and um i wouldn't you know i suppose jay it's like everything else perfectionist people with perfectionist tendencies are more prone to chronic hyperventilation Mm -hmm. and then they bring that same perfectionism into breathing and uh the only thing about breathing is that it doesn't always go in a straight direction a straight line right there's always little ups and downs and even interpreting your bowl score like I would say to people, do it within reason. And I suppose the main thing is that you're you're noticing that when you're feeling pretty poor and fatigued, and if you're overly breathless during physical exercise, and if you're stressed, your your bolt score will typically be reduced. And by working to change your breathing patterns and to reduce your chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide and to breathe more efficiently in and out through the nose and breathe light and breathe slow and low, your bolt score improves. And a cutoff point is about 25 seconds. So what this means is that when you're sitting down now measuring your bolt score and you're taking the normal breath in and out and pinching your nose and holding your breath, 
you should be able to hold your breath for 25 seconds plus before you feel the first definite desire to breathe or before you feel the first involuntary movement of the diaphragm. So your diaphragm breathing muscle, which is located just at the base of your ribs, at some point when the brain tells you to breathe, the brain sends a message via the phrenic nerve to the diaphragm and the diaphragm breathing muscle moves downwards so you'll feel a contraction. So -hmm. that's where you're looking for and when you resume breathing it should be fairly normal. And um, there's also a relationship between, of course, the length of time of your your breath hold time, your chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide is also related to the sensitivity of the baroreflex, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. So when people are talking about, you know, and I don't want to go down because this is going to be your field, um, that there's a connection there. And I think it, it, if we look at people who are overly stressed, their breathing is faster, their breathing is harder, their breathing is upper chest, they may have irregular breathing. These people will have a lower bolt score. Mm-hmm. So when you have a low bolt score, it typically tells you that your breathing is not up to par. There's room for improvement. But the one thing about the bolt score is it kind of tells you where you're at because I can imagine the number of people, say, going into a yoga studio and the yoga teacher is bringing them through different breathing exercises. And some people will do the breathing exercises pretty easy. And some people will really be struggling. They're over overly breathless. They feel air hunger. And that person may not realize that the reason that they're feeling overly breathless is because they're just their everyday breathing is a little bit under par. And when our everyday breathing is under par, it absolutely is going to affect the mind. It's going to affect our breathing during physical exercise. It's going to affect our sleep. And overall, we have to bear in mind that, that the harder and faster we breathe, the less oxygen is delivered throughout the body. So it can affect our overall health. Yeah, indeed. No, that's a great explanation. So uh, one of the things that I wanted to highlight is that you indicated kind of like that 25 second mark is kind of like a really good kind of like basic, you know, identifier Mm. indicator. Uh, I know that you've written about to kind of like the 30 second mark, and then more especially to kind of like the hallmark or the gold standard being 40 seconds. Is that still kind of where you're at? Is that like the gold standard would be to find a way to get yourself uh, up to a bolt score of 40? Or have you kind of changed your notion on that no no i haven't changed my notion but i don't want to scare people off either yeah um you know it's kind of surprising even working with elite athletes that we can see low bolt scores and bolt score even though it's a really important determinant of breathlessness during physical exercise mm-hmm. an athlete with a low bolt score is more likely to gas out too soon they have disproportionate breathlessness they're wasting too much energy on breathing because there's a, there's an energy cost associated with breathing. So if you have an individual breathing hard and fast and working their breathing muscles excessively, well, that's going to consume oxygen and this can lead to fatigue. And the respiratory muscles too are prone to fatigue. So really as human beings, we need to be able to train ourselves to be economical with the breath and to be efficient and to get, to get more out of the breath. So in other words, to do more with less. Now, 40 seconds would be absolutely the goal. Mm -hmm. And an individual that might be, say, you know, I was working with people there two weeks ago and their bolt scores were three seconds and five seconds. And one person was bed bound. So they they couldn't get out of bed. They're totally caught for breath. They are under medical supervision. So it's not that I'm kind of saying do breathing exercise and don't go to your doctor. 
Um, but we were using breathing exercises as a means to help bring some control to their breathing. And, you know, it, it's, it's always going to give me some feedback there. Now, the 25 second mark was, was supported by a study by Professor Kyle Kiesel. He's a professor of physical therapy. I think it's from Evansville University in, in the United States. And he looked at 51 individuals. The average age was 27 years of age. Only five of them had normal breathing. And wow. that's now I wouldn't I would never say that, you know, five, five out of 50. So you're talking about 20. What's that? Five into 51. <laughs> yeah. 20 percent of my that's right. Um, having normal breathing, meaning that 80 percent. Sorry, that's 10 percent. Yeah. Five out of 90 percent, 90 percent having abnormal breathing yeah. or at least they, they were failing in some dimension, the biochemical, the biomechanical or psychophysiological aspects of breathing. So normally I would say that it's about 20% of the, the normal population having a bolt score of less than 25 seconds. But I'm going to revise that. It's really, you know, the literature says that 20% of the population have dysfunctional breathing. About 75% of the population with anxiety and, and panic disorder have dysfunctional breathing. 50% yeah. of people with lower back pain, 30% of people with asthma. But if we were to use the marker of dysfunctional breathing as having a bolt score of 25 seconds or less, we would see that figure climb hugely. Yeah, uh, yeah that's, what I, that's exactly what I was thinking. I was like, you know, there's no way, especially with all the people that I've seen, which again, I tend to see a little bit more of a clinical population for the most part. Uh, but I was like, man, uh, yeah, I w like the 20% number sounds incredibly low for dysfunctional breathing. But yeah, I think that if you use kind of the proxy of the bolt score, especially that 25 second mark, you're right. I think that number is going to be significantly inflated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And People don't always feel, you know, like I had a very low bolt score and going around with my mouth open and I was continuously breathing faster, mm -hmm. breathing upper chest. And I was highly strong. Like you, it wasn't that I had anxiety. You know, can you really, the physiology, if you have a low bolt score, your breathing is, is faster, it's upper chest, it's irregular, and that's going to affect your physiology overall and you're more likely to be in that increased sympathetic drive increased stress response and i suppose people fail to think that it's not just that stress or a stressful situation causes our breathing to change if we have a, a poor breathing pattern it's feeding into the stress response and i use an example jay imagine you have two people going to you to do a job interview and mm -hmm. you are interviewing the first person and they're pretty calm and collected and their breathing is, is, you know, it's difficult enough to detect. They're nose breathers, slow breathers, and they get through the interview pretty well. And the second person comes in and has dysfunctional breathing. They walk in with their mouth open. They're sitting there with their mouth open. They're having frequent sighing, which is going to tell you, even though you might not necessarily, of course, you're going to pick up on it, but most people... They pick up on it, but they don't necessarily make a conscious decision on it. But if you see somebody in front of you sighing frequently, it's telling you that that person is uncomfortable in this situation. Right. Yeah. And you're not likely to choose that person. And that's why the breath can let us down if we're not aware of it. Yes. And with the bold score, you know, by measuring it, you do get some feedback, even though it's not perfect. But at least you'll get some feedback of where you're at. 
And the good thing about it is that it can be trained and your yeah. breathing can be trained. And the other thing that I'll just say is that the reason that we don't do a maximum breath hold time is because it can be influenced by willpower and determination. So you might have somebody who comes in, and we often see this with athletes as well, and I will ask them to do a breath hold, and they're taking a normal breath in and out and pinching their nose, and these guys will hold their breath. They'd literally hold their breath until they go blue, until, you know, I have to tell <laughs> it's them so this, competitive. this is not what it's about. <laughs> exactly. So that's where willpower and determination is going to influence the breath hold time, and that's why we don't go for maximum breath hold time. We just go for the first definite desire to breathe. In other words, how long does it take when you stop breathing? How long does it take for your brain to react to the fact that you've stopped breathing? Mm -hmm. It should be 40 seconds. But if you're if you're above 25 seconds, you're doing pretty okay. But there's some room for improvement. If you're down at five seconds, you know yourself that your breathing is problematic. 10 seconds, your breathing is problematic. 15 seconds, still not a good place to be. Right. You know, but if you're up towards 20 and 25 seconds you'll start to feel that you you do have some control over your breathing i i really like your explanation as to why you would choose the bolt over something like the co2 tolerance test which is more like kind of a maximum breath hold test and would ne and more more than likely be kind of like an end inspiration breath hold and so one of the one of the the thing that i really kind of honed in on and what you said is that we're basically going to let our physiology tell us and dictate kind of like what it's um uh, what its tolerance level is without you having to kind of be the one to force yourself to kind of like use the will power to hold it as long as you can because you're right like people like myself probably you others you know like you've mentioned can get extremely competitive and like i'll pass out before you know like i stop that timer sometimes which is why like if you know if i'm practicing free diving or if i'm in the pool like doing breath hold tests like i have to have somebody with me like i know that like and it's just kind of a a, a thing that i that i carry with me um whereas like the bolt test is like your body's going to tell you your brain is going to tell you like your diaphragm is going to tell you. And so instead of us just kind of relying on kind of like our own like ability, if you will, like we just listen to our physiology. So I really love that explanation. The other thing that I'll yeah, mention too, yeah. Patrick, that you highlighted um, is again the relationship uh, between the bi-direct, or I would say the bi-directional relationship between kind of our nervous system functioning and breathing. And one thing is, is like what signal are we sending to the nervous system through our breath? And 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 you highlighted this in a really uh, you know nice fashion. Like if we are breathing in a very labored, fast, like from the mouth type of fashion, from the chest type of fashion then that's going to send a direct signal to the nervous system uh, via a process called respiratory sinus arrhythmia or RSA um, that you are in a place where that is unsafe and is unprotected. That's an evolutionary perspective on this, right? So RSA is kind of like the gas pedal being pushed on and the brake being relinquished throughout the breath cycle. So we know that as we inhale, the heart rate is going to rise upward. And as we exhale, it's going to go down. And that actually is one of the primary contributors to heart heart rate variability. We know that if that hill, that peak in the valley of the heart rate across the respiratory cycle, if it's fast and labored and shallow, then that hill is going to be a lot smaller, which is going to lead to what? Less heart rate variability, which is why we use it as a proxy for nervous system functioning. So you can see how like these short, shallow, labored, you know, thoracic breaths are going to influence significantly the autonomic nervous system response, and it's going to be represented in a lowered HRV. However, 
we start to shift our breathing to a much deeper, slower nasal breath. And we're going to see that those peaks and valleys of the heart rate across the respiratory cycle significantly increase. And that's where people are going to see a higher heart rate variability. So a lot of people, and that's a very kind of simplistic way of kind of explaining the physiology behind heart rate variability and breath work or breath modulation. However, that's why people, when they engage in this type of breath work, are going to see such significant changes in HRV in such a little time frame. I mean, I, and I think that that's such a, a valuable thing. Again, it's, it's always accessible to us anywhere we are, we can change the, our, our breath work and we don't need, you know, a wearable or some type of biometric to know that this is occurring. This is just natural physiology. So I like that you, you know, you highlighted that as well. Are there any other low hanging fruit, Patrick, that you can say, like, these are some other ways that you can help to improve your bolt score? Yeah, I'd, I'd even like to go back because I think you've raised a really good, you know, good point there with respiratory sinus arrhythmia. I remember hearing that therapists of old, if they were really tuned in with their their patients, um, what they would do is they would have the patient relax for a few minutes, and you know everything settles down, and the therapist then would would place their they would take the per- person's pulse, and while they were taking the person's pulse they would be observing their breathing. And the therapist would be looking for, of course, that as the person is breathing in, their heart rate is getting a little bit faster. And as they are breathing out, the heart rate is getting a little bit slower. Mm -hmm. So the therapist would use this to gauge whether whether the person was in state of balance in the autonomic nervous system or a state of stress. It's a very simple thing, Jay, isn't it? That we can can check in ourselves. You know, if, if we're feeling a bit stressed ourselves, just... I don't know how long do you have to sit down for before your kind of everything settles down to get a true reading and maybe coffee and everything else can interfere with it. But just even putting your hand, just locating your carotid artery, which you'll find at the angle of the jaw and you'll find your pulse there. So you're you're just basically following the speed of your heart rate and connect that with your breathing and just check when you breathe in, what do you notice about your heart rate? Now, this is where breathing comes in because of course we know that when you gently slow down the exhalation, you can help to optimize or stimulate the vagus nerve and in the long term, help to influence heart rate variability. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the first exercises I started you know, using for myself back in the day, and it was kind of an exercise that flew in the face of everything that I knew about, and to the point that it was the complete opposite. Um, I remember going in to do an exam, and I was—I always use this, and I hope I didn't bring this up in the last podcast. <laughs> but I'm sure I'd repeat it again anyway. As you do, that's nah, okay. Let but it fly. I man. was nervous. I was nervous going into the exam, as most kids are. And uh, I took a walk for about two to three minutes, and I took these full big breaths because that's what I believed at the time to be beneficial. For, so for about two to three minutes during my walk, I took these full big breaths. I can't remember whether it was nose or mouth or boat, likely mouth, but I walked into the exam hall and I was feeling lightheaded. I was spaced out and I really wasn't in the right frame of mind to do well in that exam. And for me to get any sort of grades, it took so much work. And it wasn't necessarily that I was a stupid kid growing up, but you know what? If our, phy- if our physiology is acting against us, you know, like society is labeling us as being academically intelligent or not based on what we do in the grades, but society is not checking out our physiology. And right. many of us are genetically predisposed 
to faster breathing, if we have asthma, if we have a tendency towards anxiety or panic disorder, or even if we've been through some trauma, you know, because whether it's a chronic stress or whether it's a major life, you know, event, that can change our breathing patterns. So I sat down and started doing this breathing exercise. Uh, it's going back a long time ago. And I was sitting there, my mouth was closed, breathing in and out through my nose. And I started really slowing down the speed of the inhalation, taking a very soft inhalation and a really, really relaxed and slow exhalation. In actual fact, I was breathing less air. So what I was doing was deliberately taking less air into my body to create a feeling of air hunger. And by doing that exercise, when you breathe less air, the gas carbon dioxide accumulates in the blood. And it's the gas carbon dioxide that's the stimulus to breathe. So when you breathe less air, you feel air hunger, and that's due to the increase of carbon dioxide. But the interesting thing about with carbon dioxide is that carbon dioxide could be responsible for stimulating the vagus nerve. Mm -hmm. And when you practice that exercise for three, four minutes, now if you're prone to panic attacks, go easy because the feeling of air hunger just might tip you into the fight or flight response. So yes. I suppose maybe start off for about 30 seconds and see how you feel. And uh, if you feel comfortable doing it for 30 seconds, extend it to a minute. And if you feel comfortable doing it for a minute, extend it to a minute and a half or whatever. So you kind of go easy and listen to your body because your body will tell you. The, I noticed my hands were getting warmer doing the exercise. And I noticed I'd increased watery saliva in the mouth. And I just could feel a difference in my physiology from doing the very thing that most people tell you not to do. In actual fact, for breathing less air, which Western society is not about breathing less in actual fact, everything when it comes to Western society is all about more, whether it's breathing and anything else, even though yeah. now it's changing, you know, even coming to our houses. Like now there's a trend that instead of having the big house with six bathrooms and six bedrooms and whatever, it's about having the smaller and minimalism is better. And it's the same thing when it comes to the breath. Minimalism is mm. the key. And it's really about slowing down the exhalation, especially so whether you take in a soft, typically when we do it, we take in a soft inhalation and we really have a slow and relaxed exhalation. And by doing that, you are increasing carbon dioxide in the blood. You know that you're doing it when you feel air hunger. And as carbon dioxide is increasing in the blood, it helps to stimulate the vagus nerve. Now, the slow exhalation is also likely. So, you know, is it the slow exhalation or the increase in carbon dioxide or both? which stimulates the vagus nerve. But you will know that when you do it, if you do it correctly, check the saliva in the mouth, which is always a good feedback because when, when the body is, is rested and ready for the consumption of food, you'll have increased watery saliva in the mouth. And if the body and brain, if the brain feels that the body is under threat and if the brain wants to get you out of that situation, it's not a time to eat, your mouth goes dry, and you're in that fight or flight response to get out of the situation. So anytime that you can slow down your breathing, you can in experience increased watery saliva in the mouth, you know that your body and mind is going into relaxation. It's a good tool to have. And, you know, I think it's a great tool, Jay, to use even at different times throughout the day if we're feeling a little bit stressed.
I like that you honed in on this idea of kind of utilizing your biology as a source of feedback as to kind of what your nervous system is representing. Yeah, we can use great technology. Like, obviously, I'm a huge advocate here at Hanu Health. Like, that's what we do is to utilize health technology. However, like what we can also do, too, if we don't have we're not privy to that or we're not, you know, have accessibility to that is use things like check in for the amount of you know salivation, check in on the carotid artery to kind of pace your breathing and your heart rate that way. I mean, I do that all the time even with wearables sometimes i'll just place two fingers on the carotid artery i'll inhale and exhale and i'm so attuned um, to my nervous system that i can really kind of predict my heart rate variability and my respiratory sinus arrhythmia just based off feel and again that's just because i'm so close to it i mean i look at data all the time i know what my data look like i know what i feel like subjectively when i experience nervous system change but these are all things to check in and the last thing too you know like the the idea of stimulating the vagus nerve both through breathing and pacing of breathing by extending kind of the breath across the respiratory cycle or extending that exhalation as well is really important. But I also too here in a minute when we get to the questions, we'll talk about kind of the idea of CO2 pooling and what that can actually do for vagal stimulation and how that can be representative in an increased heart rate variability. So Patrick, all great thoughts and ideas. Thank you for again, explaining the bolt score, dysfunctional breathing, explaining kind of how we assess it, how we improve it. Um, I hopefully uh, for our listeners that with some valuable um, kind of takeaway, something that you can practically do, um, you know, starting today. Uh, and I think that's, you know, a really good segue for us to kind of hit up some of these uh, questions that we have from our listeners. What do you think, Patrick? Yeah, go fresh. All right, let's do it. All right. So this is the part of the show where we answer questions that come in from you, the listeners. Uh, and if you want to feature your question on here so that Patrick and, a- and I can answer, all you have to do is send the question over to podcast at hanuhealth.com. That's podcast at hanuhealth.com. You can also reach out to us on Instagram at hanuhealth. Uh, please make sure you follow us. We got some great content coming your way. Stay in the loop. Uh, but we have some, we have four great questions. We'll see if we get to all four, depending on time. Uh, but these questions, again, all have to do with uh, stress resiliency, all have to do with breath work and heart rate variability. So here we go. Uh, the first question is from Ian, who asks, I have noticed that breath holds, here we go, talking about breath holds already, namely holding the breath after the exhale will increase my HRV, my heart rate variability. So why does this happen? And should it be a practice that I continue? Well, I'm assuming like asking about, you know, should you continue breath holds? We've already talked about, um, you know, the efficacy and and, and what can happen from a physiological, psychological perspective with breath holds. Uh, But I'd love to talk about this idea of breath holds, um, both after the after inspiration and after exhalation, kind of why that would effectively change heart rate variability. And I'll kind of answer first here, Patrick, and then I want, you know, hear your Mm -hmm. follow up thoughts. because this is actually something that has been presented to me numerous times. People are like, you know, I've noticed, you know, when I'm doing, you know, some oxygen advantage practices, you know, when I'm trying to simulate high altitude training and I'm wearing a continuous HRV monitor, I'll notice that, you know, during my breath holds, like my HRV will suddenly just skyrocket. Like it will go up. Like I'm walking and initially like it'll be down because I'm walking, which makes sense. Heart rate variability goes down with movement or with exercise. However, when I'm breath holding, it goes up. Like, why is this happening? 
thing? And this is a really interesting question, and I've noticed it with myself as well. Now, Ian is asking about holding the breath after the exhale, which to my knowledge, and again, you may have seen other things, Patrick, I have not seen research on uh, why this could happen after the exhale, which is, you know, I know a common practice for you. Um, However, there has been some uh, research that I've pulled up that has looked at the effects of heart rate variability after people hold their breath um, or or have apnea after they've inhaled. So we call this again, end inspiration breath holding. So a lot of people will actually, um, you know, what I'll just tell an anecdote on this, and then I'll talk about some research that I found. So uh, I actually know an individual, John, who is a co-founder of Hanu. So John, if you're listening to this, I'm going to kind of uh, share some of your stories. And one of the things that John noticed, and many other clients have noticed that I've worked with, um, is that when they are uh, working, especially when they're like writing emails, they'll just find themselves holding their breath. We call this email apnea. And when that occurs, for most people too, when they're wearing continuous heart rate variability monitors, they'll actually see the opposite of what Ian said, um, which is instead of an increase in heart rate variability, they'll actually see a significant decrease in heart rate variability, which might seem, you know, again, contradictory to what Ian said. But let me kind of explain my hypothesis and then explain a little bit of the research behind this. Um, The first thing is, is that when we're engaging in something like email apnea or holding our breath during an email, like this is an unconscious breath hold. Um, So this is when we're not paying attention, we're not intentionally uh, holding our breath. Uh, It's just the body's kind of natural defense mechanism kind of turning on right now to say kind of, okay, like I'm in a tense situation for some reason. Again, we can kind of hypothesize why I'm going to now hold my breath and, you know, retain CO2, which actually too, you could argue from an evolutionary perspective could be a means that if you're like nervous and you're writing an email or you're kind of heightened from a sympathetic nervous system perspective, writing an email, then it might be your body's way of kind of protecting you during that time. However, we do see that a lot of people engage in that. We'll see how a deduction or a reduction, I should say, in heart rate variability. Now, when I've seen people practice consciously, so they're consciously doing breath holds, um, and they've been doing this practice over a long period of time, then I start to see kind of a different profile from a nervous system manifestation. So again, there was a study that was done in 2014, and it looked at the effects of repetitive end inspiration breath holding on heart rate variability, especially short-term heart rate variability biometrics. Again, just so people you know realize what we're talking about, HRV is a great proxy for nervous system functioning. So we know that when people are stressed, their heart rate variability goes down. The heart will naturally start to pace itself. Whereas when we are uh, more resilient to stress, primed to handle stress, we're relaxed, we're composed from a nervous system perspective, heart rate variability will increase. And so what this study did is it looked at kind of these individuals who are considered quote unquote healthy And they had them perform 30 second breath holds after kind of a period of just kind of regular, you know, respiration. And what they found is, is that during the breath hold, um, there are markers for heart rate variability that would be indicative of a relaxation response, predominantly the RMSSD value, which most people, if you're familiar with heart rate variability, you should be familiar with that uh, biometric because it's kind of like the gold standard for short short term HRV measurements. They actually found that that was significantly decreased. Um, 
they also found that the high frequency band, which is again, another proxy uh, for um, uh, parasympathetic functioning and parasympathetic output was decreased as well. So what does that mean? So that means that when people were performing the breath hold, that actually HRV was going down and that was more indicative of the nervous system being taxed. However, what they found is, is that after people were to uh, start kind of recovering and be back in a normal respiratory mode, then their HRV in those biometrics that I just mentioned, RMSSD and high frequency or HF power, significantly increased. So engaging in those breath holds while during the breath hold didn't result in a significant increase afterwards when they were recovering prior to, you know, uh, in comparison to the baseline before they did the breath hold, HRV significantly went up. So what does that mean? So that means that the actual practice of breath holding led to a residual carryover effect of increased nervous system resiliency, an increased relaxation response, which is significantly fascinating to me. Now, one thing I'll point out in this study and the other study that I'm going to mention real quickly is that these individuals, my guess at least, and they didn't mention within the study, but my guess is, is that these people like don't practice breath holding techniques. Like they probably were just thrown into this. And unlike Ian, who it sounds like he is consciously practicing breath holding, these people were just thrown into this study and they said, okay, now hold your breath. And so my guess is, and again, to Patrick, I'd love to hear kind of your take on it, is that they probably, like most individuals, like didn't necessarily have functional breathing. Um, like most individuals probably didn't have a high uh, tolerance for CO2. And so because of that, like during the breath hold probably was a little bit shocking to their system, at least initially. Again, not something that they're used to, like their nervous system isn't used to them holding their breath like this. However, I have found that people like Ian, like myself, the more and more we practice and condition kind of a higher level of CO2 pooling, a higher level of CO2 tolerance, that the body actually starts to respond to that in the moment as it's seeing it as a conscious means of turning on the relaxation response via the vagus nerve. So kind of the net net of this or the take on this, Ian, is that I think that the nervous system has been conditioned um, uh, through your breath hold practice to see it as a means of enhancing a relaxation response. Whereas the everyday individual that's just starting to engage in breath holding or like in the study who have never done it before, um, they may not kind of have that carryover. They have the carryover effect where the body's like, yeah, that was really good for me. However, uh, in the moment, they're kind of, it's, the nervous system's kind of shocked because it's just not used to it. And so the last thing I'll mention before I kind of t- get your take on it, Patrick is that there was another study that was actually published last year in 2020 that looked at apnea's influence on the autonomic nervous system. And they were actually looking at it more in terms of um, how uh, apnea then resulted in potential uh, arrhythmia, like heart arrhythmia, but that used HRV as as another primary proxy of nervous system functioning. And uh, and they were trying to explain kind of why, you know, people that do hold their breath, and again, I would would say more so unconsciously, how that could lead to um, a rhythmic heartbeat. Uh, But what they did found in terms of heart rate variability is yes, like when people started to like engage in voluntary apnea, especially again, I'm assuming these people weren't trained in apnea, that they would see a significant reduction during the breath hold on that RMSSD value and on that HF value, the high frequency value. But again, very similar to the previous study that was done in 2014, they found again, that after people were done with the breath hold during the recovery period, that heart rate variability metrics skyrocketed. It went up 
that was higher than the pre- previous baseline, which is significantly important to note. So what does that mean? The net net of this is that when people engage in apnea type training, when they engage in these breath hold trainings, especially if um, they, uh, well, I'll say, we'll say if they have never done them before, is that the body will still respond, excuse me, in a means that is of a higher recovery level. So I think the net net here again is that if people are not practicing breath holding and they just initially do it, then they may see a decrease in heart rate variability, which indicates kind of a more enhanced stress response. However, they still will see a, an increase in, in resiliency of the nervous system after that breath hold period. And then for people who have really been practicing this, have really conditioned the nervous system to respond um, uh, to breath holds uh, by enhancing vagal functioning due to CO2 pooling. Then, then we'll see kind of like that increase kind of in the moment again. And that's going to be more conditioned the more people have utilized this practice. So I know that was a bit long winded, but I wanted to open up a couple of those studies, kind of give my take on it from a psychophysiological perspective, from a heart rate variability perspective. But Patrick, what say you on this topic? It's very interesting. <laughs> to be honest with you, I don't know. <laughs> and there's a couple of things that you'll be thinking about here that come into mind. Carbon dioxide itself is known as a, as an, as a natural sedative. And um, the brain, by regulating breathing, regulates its own excitability. And this has been written about since 1924. So I suppose you can think of the individual who is having a panic attack and they're told to breathe in and out of a brown paper bag. So they're to rebreathe carbon dioxide from the bag into the lungs to increase carbon dioxide in the blood to improve blood flow and oxygen delivery to the brain. So carbon dioxide itself can have a calming effect on the central nervous system. Now, that may be one aspect of it. And also by practicing breath holds, you're helping to desensitize your body's reaction to the buildup of carbon dioxide. And ultimately, your breathing then becomes lighter and slower. And this will enable you then to have that longer exhalation naturally and a natural pause following exhalation, which there should be there. And I suppose, Jay, we forgot to mention that with when your bold score is about 20 seconds, you will have a natural pause after exhalation of between one to two seconds. Right. And it's often a marker that I look at when, when I'm working with somebody, I'm looking at their breathing. And yeah, of course, I'll pay attention to if they're breathing upper chest, how far, how fast are they breathing? Um, what's their tidal volume? But very importantly, how regular is their breathing? But very importantly is, do they have a natural pause following exhalation? So that might be one aspect of it. I, you know, in terms of desensitizing the body's reaction to carbon dioxide, it could be one. Um, another aspect of it as well that I took from an article that was written by Dr. Singh, and he spoke about, he said that carbon dioxide, it produces a vagotropic effect, that the direct influence of carbon dioxide, now I'm reading it direct from his article, it causes changes in the sensitivity of the vagus nerves nuclei, which decelerate cardiac activity, particularly the diastolic phase. So there's a shorter time for the contraction of the ventricles and a longer time for the relaxation. This decelerates the pulse rate and improves the blood filling of the heart. So he's seeing a direct role for carbon dioxide in terms of stimulating the vagus nerve. Now, but what's interesting was your point that when somebody is having an email apnea, it causes a reduced HRV. But yet if we do a conscious apnea, okay, HRV during the apnea, because of course, when you hold your breath, depending on the length of breath, 
retinal time, it can activate a stress response. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a very interesting, and I don't have a I don't have a full answer on that. But why do we hold our breath if we're looking at a computer? Is it because the individual is hyperventilating beforehand, and they blow off too much carbon dioxide and increased blood pH? And carbon dioxide is the drive to breed. And if you blow off too much carbon dioxide from having a stress response, well, then the brain doesn't send a signal to breathe, and that can initiate a natural apnea. And the apnea could be as a result of the body trying to to normalize blood pH. And if you're hyperventilating, and all that means is that your breathing is a little bit faster, an upper chest, a little bit harder. It's, It's not as if anybody is having a panic attack or a hyperventilation attack. It just means that your breathing is a little bit faster and you're getting rid of too much carbon dioxide from the blood to the lungs. And as a result, then the brain simply does not send a signal to breathe. So the person who's having an email apnea, physiologically, they're more likely to be in a stress response. Whereas when you're doing an apnea and you're doing it in your own free time and you might be doing it, I often do it on the treadmill, for example. And I think it's a great place to relax into it because there's something primordial about the feeling of suffocation, Jay. Do you know, mm-hmm. if we kind of, if we, how do we deal with it? We have to relax into it. So it's almost that it's forcing us to adopt a relaxation response. So you're feeling air hunger and you're naturally bringing a feeling of relaxation throughout the body and you're re- relaxing into the discomfort. Now, there could be something else going on that we're training our brain not to react to discomfort. And this could be improving then our resilience to overall stress. So, yeah, I think it's fascinating, you know, and this is just the complexity of the human body. Indeed. You know, and the other thing, too, that we didn't really mention, but I think it bears, you know, kind of, uh, you know, some some level of mentioning uh, is that, you know, I love that you kind of mentioned kind of there's these potential precipitating factors as to why this could kind of cause a lowered HRV in, in email apnea or either other times of stress induced apnea. Um, and, and I think that that's a really good point. The other thing too, which is a very complex thing to kind of uh, test, but we also have to think that there are other compounding variables, like what's going on within the environment. And then the other one too would be cognition. So kind of what are the thought patterns, like what's going on within kind of the psychological cognitive processes of the individual that could also be too sending a direct signal to the nervous system to, okay, fight or flight, like let's get into, you know, go mode, which could then manifest in, you know, hyperventilation which could then manifest in kind of breath holding um, and CO2 pooling. So there's all these different variables. There's no kind of, you know, one size fits all answer to this. Uh, But what I do love too, and kind of the, you know, the takeaway point from this is that again, like we have to differentiate between these conscious and unconscious breath holds and kind of when can we utilize it for us or when can breath holding actually kind of be something um, that may be a sign. It may signal us to kind of tune into the nervous system because I don't want to say again that email apnea is quote unquote bad, like holding your breath during an email is bad. It might just be a signaling mechanism. Um, so that's why it is so incredibly valuable and important for us to tune in to what the nervous system is telling us to tune into our body as to what we're doing. And again, like that's, that's kind of our motto here at Hanu health, right? It's like all about self-awareness and then self-regulation. So, and Thank you for that question. A phenomenal, uh, you know, topic for us to discuss. I'm sure that Patrick and I could go on, you know, hypothesizing and theorizing for hours among hours about this. Uh, but that was a great, mm, that's a question, question that raises more questions 
<laughs> it really does. It really does. But you know, the thing is, too, is that it, it's not an uncommon theme that I've heard from people um, that are practicing these conscientious breath holds and have done so for enough time to really kind of condition the nervous system. So yeah, great question. All right, on to the next one, which comes from Jonathan. So Jonathan, thanks for your submission. Uh, Jonathan asks, I find myself with muscular tension all the time, but especially in the afternoon. I do a lot of heavy training, but I think that stress is also a key component. I'm assuming heavy training would be like exercise or resistance weight-based training. Is there a better breathing strategy or timing that I could engage in to help me regulate this? Okay, cool. So Jonathan's got a couple of questions here, Patrick. So finds himself with this muscular tension that kind of creeps itself up in the afternoon. It sounds like there's probably a bit of a compounding effect you know, does some resistance training, but thinks that there could be stress. Like, what do you think for him is a good suggestion on how to approach this from a breathwork strategy perspective or a timing perspective so that he can better regulate that response? Yeah, I think it's very important to be able to connect with the body. And very often we're, we're so stuck in our heads that we we're not necessarily knowing what's going on. For example, is I, is his name Ian, I think it is, that Ian could be sitting down. Uh, this he's is after Jonathan. Doing his, his, his Jonathan is after, he could be sitting down, he's after doing his training, and now he's sitting in an office, and he could be sitting for four hours, and he's completely immersed in a computer screen. He's no idea of what his posture is like. He's no idea what his breathing is like. And who knows if that's going to be a contributory factor. If we have some connection and bringing some attention into the body throughout the day, we tend to be better at spotting when we're getting stressed mm. and when we're feeling tense. And when we are feeling tense, I think it's very important to step in and we can use the breath, even two minutes of it, to help activate the body's relaxation response. And all you would have to do is, while you're sitting at your desk, is to breathe in softly through your nose and to have a relaxed and a slow and gentle breath out all the stuff that you've been talking about for years. And what that does is, of course, it's going to help initiate the relaxation response. But even more, Jay, because I was looking at a study today and it looked at better decision making in business. And they looked at two, two individual studies. And in one study, there were 30 healthy people performing an equal ratio of inhaling, exhaling. So, for example, breathing in for five seconds and out for five seconds. And... Um, a skewed pattern, breathing in for four seconds, breathing out for six, or those who were just watching a, a neutral film. And they concluded that the individuals who were doing breathing, and it didn't matter if it was five seconds in and five seconds out, or four seconds in and six seconds out, that their stress levels were, were before and after the task. Mm -hmm. While controls reported elevations and those in the experimental and importantly participants in the experimental group those who were doing the slow breathing provided a significantly higher percentage of correct answers than controls so interesting here is something that you know we're all prone to we all have i think crazy schedules to be honest with you mm -hmm. and it can be so easy so immersed in what we are doing that we even don't we completely forget what's going on in the body but after a while the body will soon tell us. Now, I've had people who come in and they say, well, how do I relax? I don't know how to relax. <laughs> I would start off in that instance by having a recording of relaxation. And we use, for example, 
a combination of guided meditation with relaxation and counting the person down and bringing them into a total state of relaxation to allow everything to relax. If they're feeling tense, I would typically often say, for example, if it's the area around the chest that's tense, we would get them to deliberately tense the chest and to feel the tension and then to feel bring a feeling of relaxation to it. So, for example, if you can imagine that your, your hand is tensed, what's the best way to help bring a feeling of relaxation to your hand? Deliberately tense up your hand, roll it into a ball, feel the tension, and then bring a feeling of relaxation. You then start to have a comparison between what it feels like when it's tensed and what it feels like when it's relaxed. Yeah, it sounds very, very similar important. to uh, progressive muscle relaxation, which is exactly. an amazing yeah, technique. Pretty, yes, it's pretty much what it is. And a good massage can help a lot here as well. Mm -hmm. Breathing, of course. How is Jonathan breathing? Um, and we're talking about breathing, not just in the two minutes that he's going to practice, you know, activating the body's relaxation response. How is he breathing 24-7? How is he breathing during his sleep? Because it all matters. What's his bolt score? What we talked about earlier on. Mm -hmm. You know, because time and time again, I've seen so many individuals coming in with faster breathing, upper chest breathing, irregular breathing, and of course they're going to be in a state of tension. So when we're in that, that fight or flight, that increased sympathetic arousal, you know, using the breath to help downregulate. And I think it's, it's even more interesting, Jay, that you, it improves productivity. Because I suppose a lot of people are going to consider that there's so no time to do anything. But all they're doing is sabotaging their productivity. Because right. if you're in a state of tension, whether it's the mind or body, you're not going to be at your full potential. So it's really yeah. worth your while taking some time out and giving yourself some attention. Yeah, I mean, you're going to have this cognitive shift where instead of being able to fully focus on what's going on, um, kind of your nervous system dysregulation is going to then focus on kind of whatever's manifesting, whether it's, you know, muscular tension, or it's kind of, you know, cognition going crazy, like there's going to be all these different pools uh, and pulls by P-U-L-L-S is what I should should said there. Uh, and, and these pulls are going to kind of just take us in different directions. And so we can utilize again, breath work and changing uh, our focus on self awareness and self-regulation of breathing to really help to pull us and to center us into the moment. And again, I think this is a key component as to why, you know, the practice of mindful breathing uh, and, and kind of stress regulation just go hand in hand. Like they have to go hand in hand because again, this is, I always go back to this is the lowest hanging fruit in a very non-invasive, easy to access manner. That's always going to pull us back every single time that we engage in it. And you know, one of the things that I thought here, Patrick, uh, of what Jonathan asked um, that I do want to make kind of a huge differentiation on is that uh, there's some really interesting research on kind of how stress will manifest um, uh, between the genders, between males and females. And one of the things that we know is that males, it tends to manifest more physiologically. So that chest tightening, uh, the muscular tension, especially around the traps or in the shoulders or in the neck or the tension type headaches. Whereas women, it tends to manifest a lot more cognitively, which is a lot of why actually we have demonstrations and research as to why a lot of women 
women like to talk things out. They like to kind of verbalize and kind of like let the cognition go um, instead of kind of letting it pool or sit in the head. So it's really good to kind of notice like if you're having muscular tension, could it be that you're overtraining in the weight room? Of course. Yes. So, you know, that's, that's an easy one to check off potentially, but also too, could it be due to your enhanced stress response that is also to kind of driven by dysregulated breathing, which comes back to what you mentioned, Patrick, in regards to, you know, checking in like, Jonathan, what is your bolt score? Um, kind of what is your, 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 your level of you know measurement for dysfunctional breathing? Like what signal is your body getting all throughout the day um, uh, from, from, from your breath? What's your nervous system receiving there? And, you know, he says that this happens, especially in the afternoon. And my guess is, is that it's very similar to a lot of people that I've seen and I've coached in the past that you get this compounding effect, right? So the morning time you're feeling nice and loose, you've gotten some good rest. Hopefully you've gotten good sleep. And then throughout the day, kind of the stress builds and builds and builds. And if we don't help to regulate that because we're not self-aware of it, then the next thing we know in the afternoon, you know, three o'clock, four o'clock in the afternoon, you've got this pounding tension headache, or you've got like these really rigid shoulders and your traps are all tensed up and, uh, and you're kind of noticing it, you know, a little bit later than what you should. It doesn't mean that all is lost and you can't do anything about it, but it means too, if you start to kind of, again, condition a different signaling system through your breath, starting in the very early mornings and then just slowly build it in throughout the day, then again, that is going to help you to be more resilient to the potential stressors in your environment or internally too. I mean, your thoughts can be a stressor internally. Now it's going to make you more resilient to those things, which can then reduce hopefully, you know, the effects of, of stress on things like muscular tension. So, you know, Jonathan, again, that's, it's a great question because so many people, I think, I think a lot of people, if not the majority of people experience kind of this compounding effect of stress kind of throughout the day that results in, you know, a lot of these physiological symptoms. But again, like Patrick and I have mentioned, like there are ways to regulate it. I think a lot of it is just conditioning, um, kind of a different response to the nervous system from breathing. Um, and you can do this kind of all throughout your day, uh, whether it's, you know, in sessions that you schedule out for yourself, or maybe even more preferably, uh, just noticing too, when things are kind of creeping up, the dial of your nervous system is, is, is headed in the upward direction. And then instead of kind of compressing it down to where it's going to then manifest in some of these more physiological symptoms, you take care of it by regulating your breathing in the moment through the strategies that we've mentioned. So Jonathan, great question there. Anything else to add there, Patrick, or should we move on to the next one? Yeah, I think you walk. A walk in the afternoon can be yeah. great, you know, yeah. Without just even get, getting out of the environment, getting away from the office if, if Jonathan is in an office and, uh, yeah, just bringing your attention onto the breath. And more importantly, of course, breathing in and out through the nose because of the connection between, I suppose, Jay, no science has really investigated the the real potential of breathing through the nose and the connection between the nose direct to the brain. Um, there has been studies on attention on memory, on visuospatial awareness, but even just the terminology sniffing out danger. And if we're breathing through the nose, one paper back in 1996 by Travis and Dulliard showed that it can help to activate flow states. So you're in a state of relaxation and alertness. So there is something about just going for a nice brisk 20 minute walk during your lunch break, you know, and that could be the best thing in the world. You know, you're getting out of your desk, you're getting away from the environment, you're bringing your attention inwards. And what is Jonathan normally doing at his lunch break? Is he looking into a mobile phone? Is he slouched over? Is he doing all the things that people are doing? And, you know, sometimes it's time not to do that. 
Indeed, indeed. Now, everything that we do, both internally and externally, uh, is sending a signal, um, and and we and we can regulate that signal. That's the greatest thing about this is that we can regulate that signal. So again, if the signal is you being kind of like you know face in your screen, you know face in social media, like any of those things that might, you know, uh, uh, then kind of exhibit or enhance a stress response, then sometimes it's just removal from that environment. It's getting out, getting a walk, it's moving, it's getting fresh sunlight, fresh air. All these things are so important to help regulate the nervous system because if day in and day out, it just receives this constant message of kind of this bombarding of information, this bombarding of stressors, then what do you think you're going to be? You're going to be a stressed out individual, which, you know, unfortunately, that's just the nature of kind of most people nowadays. And they don't understand the connection between kind of what they're fully immersed in on a day-to-day basis and how that significantly impacts their overall sense of well-being. So again, great thoughts here. Jonathan, thanks for your question. Uh, and, uh, and, and hopefully, we, again, we provided some, some response and, and answers that are practical and helpful, not just to you, but to, to all the other listeners out there. All right, Patrick. So let's answer one more question. I know at the beginning of the podcast, I mentioned that we have four questions, but you know, the great thing about it is that you and I, we can talk forever about these subjects and, and, and you know, we have stayed really on topic today, which is amazing. It's always good. Sometimes I, I like to derail <laughs> us. Um, but you know, I, I wanted to go ahead and just answer one more. We'll save the, the last question that Melissa asked, uh, for our next Q and a in the following month, which again, that's our plug that every month we do these Q and A's. Um, so feel free, submit your questions and uh, Melissa will get to yours uh, next month. Uh, But Angie asks, is there a better time of day to practice breathwork training? Also, is it best to practice throughout the day in short periods of time or to do more elongated training? So great question. You know, one of the things that we always mention and we need to talk about is kind of the busy schedules that people um, have nowadays, you know, whether it's work or it's kids, it's family, it's social life, it's all these different things. Like our day is packed. So a lot of people want to know, like, how do I optimize my time and include breath work as a, you know, as a habit, as something that I do? each day. And so Angie, again, is asking, like, is there a better time of day for me to do this? And then like, is it more advantageous for me to uh, kind of set aside like elongated periods of time, let's say 30 minutes or so? Or should I just do like these, you know, short periods like you and I've talked about today, Patrick, like, you know, two to five minutes. So, you know, I think that there's going to probably be, you know, different pros and cons to kind of each, you know, time period, or, you know, there's going to be pros and cons, maybe even to the time of day, you know, whether you're doing it to kind of wake up and focus for your day, or you're doing it to kind of help with sleep. But um, let's tackle this question, Patrick. So what do you what do you think? Let's first start off with like, is there a better time of day to practice breathwork training? That's a great question. Um, I think the best practice is the practice that you do, Jay. I'm sure <laughs> it's so true are going to be listening to this, and they're doing absolutely nothing. At right, all. right. So, um, uh, you, you've got a great audience, and your audience will be doing it at least one hour a day. I'll take that one back. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll hold them all but, to it. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's, this is a really, really good question. And I remember 20 years ago, I had no problem asking people to do an hour per day, and they would genuinely do it. Do you think I can get people to do an hour per day now? It's a totally <laughs> different situation. Not with Twitter and, and I think Instagram. Because, yeah, that's part of it. But you know, there's so much pressure on people. Get out for an hour of physical exercise per day. Do your meditation every day. Do your breathing exercises every day. And people don't have time. So exactly. the really best thing is 
in can you bring this into your way of life and the one thing about the breath is you don't need any equipment you just need to be able to take your attention out of the mind and into your breathing and angie made a point should i do it in long periods of time or should i do it um intermittently in other words bring my attention to my breathing many times throughout the day i often feel yeah there is pros and cons to both if for example you're feeling a little bit tired in the morning and you have 15 minutes to spare what i would do there is i would sit down and i would close eyes and bring attention inwards and really slow down your breathing to the point of air hunger and use that as a means of regaining energy because even at 15 minutes like if i'm giving a talk and you know some days it can be a little bit crazy you know talking for six seven eight nine hours even mm -hmm. and you know it can bring on its own I'm an introvert, so when you're talking as well, you're kind of losing energy and you always want to, those quiet moments. Even if I do it for 10 minutes and I'm just waiting for the talk to occur and I'm standing there for 10 minutes early and I will bring my attention inwards and I will try and recover as much energy as possible. Now, before the talk, I'll do a couple of longer breath holds then. So I don't want to go into a uh, talk, even if it's online, I don't want to be too relaxed because then, of course, the words aren't going to flow as, as well as they should do. You sure. want to try and get that happy medium. So mm -hmm. I suppose, Jay, it's really about understanding what exercises do you do to downregulate and to recover energy and what exercises do you do to upregulate. Yeah. So before sleep, for example, you don't want to be doing long breath holds because long breath holds that we spoke about earlier on, they're upregulator, they're a stress response. So during the morning and the afternoon, you could go for a walk. And if you're on your treadmill, if you're going to the gym anyway, do all of your physical exercise with the mouth closed and feel the air hunger. And the air hunger, of course, is going to be a little bit stronger with your mouth closed, depending on the intensity of your exercise. Now, the air hunger does diminish over time. But if you do your physical exercise with your mouth closed, you are already bringing good breathing practice in. And during your physical exercise, once you don't have any contraindications, once, for example, if you're not pregnant and, you know, if you do have anxiety or panic disorder, go a little bit easier with breath holds. Bring in a couple of breath holds, maybe five um, into your walk or into your jog. And of course, you're doing those with your eyes open as well. So safety, of course, is always the thing. But do it, you know, it, like to give you an example, I went on to the treadmill today. Um, I got two blocks of 40 minutes in. And I was walking at a pretty brisk pace and then going into a jog. And when you're nice and warmed up, breathe out through your nose and pinch your nose and hold your nose or even just hold your breath and hold your breath for, you know, whatever. It might be 10 paces. It might be 20 paces. It could be 30 paces until you feel a relatively strong air hunger. Then let go. Breathe in through your nose and continue your, your physical movement with breathing in and out through the nose. And that's my way of doing it. So I try to, you know, what can I do to bring breathing exercises in and then to use mm -hmm. that as a means of if I can do them, anybody else can do it. Because I used to do breathing exercises formally. And after a while, you just realize that it's difficult to fit everything in. And the best way long term is bring these into your way of life. So if you've got five minutes here, five minutes there, the best thing that you can do is take your attention out of the mind and onto your breathing. It's, yes. it's such a wonderful thing to do. And your your breath is your friend. And I suppose, Jay, the other thing is, 
maybe if people spent that hour that they normally spend on their mobile phone and instead of looking into the screen and scrolling through useless information, which except, of course, your your channels and my channels. <laughs> A nice blog there. The rest of it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> but, but instead of that, just giving ourselves some attention. I think we really need to be giving ourselves some attention. Yep. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I 100% you know agree with this, and you know, for me, like, and again, I'm gonna obviously, I, I, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a trained psychologist, so obviously, like, my background and training, both in research and as a clinician, is all gonna be about a couple of things. Number one, behavioral sustainability. So, what are the things that we can sustain as a part of our habits? What are the things that actually are gonna benefit us, um, but benefit us enough to keep bringing us back for more? And then the other thing too is like how. How can we condition responses? Um, so again, that's a very psychological term to talk about behavioral conditioning. But we know that this is true. We know that the more and more that we engage in a behavior, the more and more that we're going to condition that response to occur more frequently, and maybe even more significantly in the future. So like when she asks, uh, when Angie asks, kind of like, should you practice throughout the, the day in short periods? I'm a huge advocate of that. Because again, I think the more and more that we condition that response, the more more that that's going to unconsciously occur. So basically, like if you uh, consciously practice breath work throughout the day and send that signal of relaxation throughout the day, then when you encounter a stressor, your body is going to likely revert to that much more easily as a means of coping than if you weren't practicing it previously. So it's really a great way to kind of condition a response by doing it all throughout the day. So you're getting the acute transient effects like in the moment to help out with focus, with stress reduction, you know, with performance, but in the long run, you kind of build up kind of this chronic level of fortitude, almost like this wall around you of defense for when stressors hit you and you need to kind of unconsciously kick things into high gear. I also like that you mentioned kind of like the the type of practice that you engage in is going to depend on kind of what you're looking for in that moment. So like in the mornings when I do some breathwork training, like for me, I do things that are sometimes a little bit more sympathetically arousing, like breath holds, sometimes kind of like increasing the pace of breathing and then breath holds. Like there's there's kind of different ways of doing this um, that, that people can play around with. But for me, kind of the low hanging fruit is, is breath holding. Whereas like when I'm going to bed at night, kind of my ideas, I go into to much more coherent and resonant breathing. For me, I have a resonant frequency. We'll have to get into this into another podcast, or you can listen to my previous podcast to find out what resonant breathing is. But I have a resonant pace of five breaths per minute. And basically, that's the breath pattern or pace of breathing that is going to maximize my heart rate variability and nervous system response, um, which for me equates to a what's called a five-seven breath. So a five-second inhale, seven-second exhale. And that for me is my body again is conditioned that when I engage engage in that breathwork pattern at the end of the day, I'm going to bed. Like I've got my mouth tape on, you know, I've got my eye mask. I'm breathing at that rate. Like I'm, I'm out, I'm out like, you know, none other. It's, it's an amazing practice. So again, like the best time of day for you to practice, um, is anytime you can, <laughs> because again, we all live crazy schedules, but also too, like there are advantages to practicing throughout the day in short periods. There's advantages to kind of like strategically kind of, uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, strategizing around kind of when you breathe and why you breathe like anytime you do it is again another opportunity for you to condition a response which i will hone in over and over and over again um so angie i i hope that helps anything you want to add there uh, patrick or you think we co- we covered the bases 
Yeah, no, I think it's there. I think it really is. And uh, I like that about the habit formation. I think that's really, really the big one, isn't it? Yeah. I suppose the other thing is, Jay, for, for people to realize what they can get out of it. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, just to, that kind of initial impetus to start doing something. And like I used to see it with people coming in, but ask them over the years, the ones who were more prepared to do the exercises were the ones that their breathing was absolutely in dire situation. Yeah. And I used to have a saying, I used to say it to the rest of them, listen, if you're not doing this, you're not sick enough. And maybe that was a hard way of saying it. But <laughs> my whole idea was that, you know, you're if you, you sometimes people feel that there has to be, of course there has to be something out of it for them. But yeah. Yeah. I will honestly say, and I'm you know, I'm I'm sure you'll have no hesitation agreeing that this is really the potential here can be amazing, you oh, know, yes. for across for everybody, regardless. Yeah, I mean, without a doubt, I mean, and it's not just you and I kind of saying it because it's within our domain and field of interest. I mean, this is confounded in thousands and thousands of studies, uh, both on breathwork training, on heart rate variability, biofeedback, which is really just a form of technologically advanced breathwork training. Like all of these things have indicated that there is so much upside to with little to no you know downside to it, other than you know you taking a little bit of time out of your day, which again, like I'm all about like kill like i make things sustainable within my health and wellness lifestyle by killing you know more birds with one stone that i can and so for me what is that going to look like what's going to look like doing things like while i exercise we talked about last time uh, about how i utilize breath work within the context of sauna so like there's all these different ways where we can kill a bunch of birds with one stone sorry for you know all the PETA individuals out there talking who are going to get you know sue me for talking about killing birds <laughs> but, but i mean it's one of those things like you got to make it sustainable for you so no i love it it's so much there's so much valuable upside and again like hope if we haven't highlighted that enough today well then you know again listen to more podcasts and we'll highlight it even more for you that's it yeah indeed all right well awesome thanks again angie for that again we'll wrap up the q a right now but i'll I'll mention again too if you have a question that you want to be featured on this q a with patrick and myself then you'll just email us podcast at hanuhealth.com with your question and hopefully you will find yourself on here and we will get to your question melissa we got yours coming up next all about heart rate variability and breath work. Um, we're going to end the podcast actually every single t- month by giving away some free stuff. Uh, so what do you say, Patrick, should we give away some uh, free gear to people? Oh, absolutely. Sure. Why not? Huh? <laughs> Indeed. Especially, especially Jay, when they've got this far, Exactly. Yeah. If you are one of the loyal individuals that has made it this far, uh, then you deserve to go ahead and, uh, and write a podcast and then you deserve to get it read right here on live on air. So that's what you'll do. Like if you want uh, your podcast review to be read, all you do is go on to Apple Podcasts, write us a review. And if we read your review live on air, then you'll just email podcast at hanuhealth.com with your username, your actual name, your real name and then your address and we'll send you over an amazing free hanu health gear pack which has some hanu health stress balls an aluminum bpa free bottle with our logo on it uh, we've got some die cut stickers and then we also too we're going to throw in some a pack of myotape which we mentioned again sleep tape that patrick invented and also too you're going to get a signed copy of patrick's 
book, Atomic Focus, which is a phenomenal representation of how to use breathwork training uh, and breath modulation for focus enhancement, like reducing um, kind of distractibility, enhancing overall cognitive performance. I mean, it's a phenomenal book. So, I mean, you're going to get some amazing goodie packages if you write us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. So here we go. Today's is by Watchdog81. So Watchdog81, if you hear this, email us. You're going to get some cool stuff. They titled the review Incredible. And they said, when the master of breathing meets the master of HRV, something special happens. A must listen for anyone looking to increase health and wellness. Well done, guys. Oh, man, that's a really good review. Patrick, you are the master of breathing, and I guess that makes me the master of HRV. I feel like we need uh, lightsabers or something. Oh, that's pretty cool, Jay. That's definitely made my day, so it has. <laughs> Indeed. Me too. Me too. Don't drive our egos up too much uh, with these reviews. Actually, no, do it. We love it. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, no, but really, these reviews truly do help us to, to build the show and to have a lot more people kind of engage and, and listen to us. So, Watchdog81, I believe. Oh, yeah, Watchdog81, yeah. please feel free, email us, uh, and, uh, and you'll get this free gear package sent your way. Uh, last thing I'll say, too, before we close it up and wrap it up. Um, if you have not joined our wait list, like that is where you're going to receive such an awesome, inclusive and exclusive kind of both of them, um, you know, information and newsletter on what we're building here at Hanu health. Uh, you'll get kind of all alerts to any podcasts that are released and then all just kind of the inner workings of what we're doing at Hanu health. So go to hanuhealth.com slash waitlist join. We're actually also too, I've gotten a lot of questions about the website where that, that link is working hanuhealth.com slash waitlist. We also have hanuhealth.com slash podcast, which is going to have all of the show notes for every episode. That is coming soon as well as our regular website. We're working to get that launched, making sure we're doing it right. So just bear with us, but the waitlist hyperlink is, is ready to go. Also make sure that you follow us over at, at Hanu Health on Instagram, um, at Oxygen Advantage for Patrick's uh, uh, crew and company, and then at Buteco Clinic uh, for Patrick's personal Instagram. Mine is at Dr. J. Wiles. Patrick, man, it has been so much fun answering questions and talking with you today. Uh, man, thanks, thanks for coming on. I look forward to, to our next time, man. Absolutely, Jay. It's been a ball. It's been great. Indeed, indeed it has. All right, everybody, take care. We'll see you next Friday uh, for an all-new Hanu Health podcast. We'll see you next month for another Q&A. Looking forward to it. You guys all take care. Have a great day. Make sure that you are paying attention to your breathing. And as always, stress and less. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Hanu Health Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast would not happen without listeners and supporters like you. And the best way to support us and the show is to head on over to iTunes and provide us with a five-star review. This helps us reach others and spread the good word of breathing and stress resiliency. If we read your five-star review on air, please reach out to podcast at hanuhealth.com with your name and mailing address, and we will send you some sweet Hanu gear. Until next time, breathe better and stress less. Oh,